Welcome. You are listening to The Felon File, formerly known as 542 and the Blue. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. Felonfile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Today's discussion. The 1932 killing of a North Carolina sheriff. Shot with his own gun. The investigation and arrest of a suspect. The physical evidence, statements, and science just did not work out to prove the suspect did the homicide. The investigation and court case reverberated across the state all the way to the governor's office. Was justice found or was it denied? Listen and decide for yourself. Background Music by Purple Planet used per common license. Scott, you're online. Greetings and welcome back to Felony File, formerly 542 in the blue, as Victoria stated a few minutes ago. And by the way, Victoria, thank you for getting us started and opening us up and running the control board for us. Today's Shade of Blue story, we're going to talk about the tragic death of a sheriff of Davidson County, North Carolina, how he was killed, the complications that came with the investigation, the complications that came with the court case as well. Early one morning before about 1 a.m., February 1932, Sheriff James A. Leonard of Davidson County was killed. The sheriff was killed with his own pistol. No weapon was found at first, but later it was located buried in the ground behind the house on the property where the shooting occurred. A young man, 18 years old, from Roanoke, Virginia, Mr. Neil Weimer, was located close by, seriously wounded by a gunshot. Sheriff Jim, as he was called and was pretty much well-liked by the Davidson County community. He was a World War I veteran, served several years as an officer in the National Guard, and when the United States entered the war in 1917, he led Company A of the 120th Infantry into action. He obtained the rank of Major while helping to break the Hindenburg Line. Now returning from the war, Major Leonard entered into the civic affairs of his community. He was elected mayor of Lexington, North Carolina, twice in 1921. He was married and the father of two children. Now, the fatal shooting took place directly in front of the home of Attorney Brinkley, a home at which Sheriff Leonard, Solicitor District Attorney George Yance, and of course, Attorney Brinkley, had been dining out and having a steak dinner at the previous evening. Now, the the three gentlemen had also partook of a little spiritous liquid at the time with their meal. After the meal, it was decided that it would be a good idea to get in the sheriff's car and drive to Winston-Salem to visit with a friend of the sheriff. Now, once there, the three enjoyed the musical talents of the friend's daughter and his wife, enjoyed conversation with the sheriff's friend and little dessert. Everything was going very well, and apparently they had maybe just a little more spirituous liquid 
that was dispersed to assist, you know, with the conversation and the musical enjoyment. Nothing unusual at all about that. Now, around 11 o'clock, the three decided it was time to return to the town of Lexington. On their way back, the sheriff was driving his car when it was alleged to have been run off the road by an oncoming, by an oncoming truck that was in his lane. And whether true or not, the end result was is the same, no matter how you look at it. The car was run off into a ditch on the side of the road and it flipped over on its top. The vehicle was damaged enough that it couldn't be righted and it just it could not be recovered and used as a mode of transportation that night. Now there was a transport truck hauling fruit between Florida and Virginia and it was behind the sheriff's car and its occupants observed what happened and saw the car accident. Like good citizens, the truck occupied by Mr. Weimer and driven by a Mr. Sullivan who owned the truck and the transport company, they stopped to assist. When it was determined that the car needed more assistance to be removed from the ditch than the five men had, Mr. Sullivan offered to return the three men to where their adventure started, Attorney Brinkley's home. Now a truck used to haul fruits interstate in 1931-32 did not have a lot of passenger room. It wasn't a designed for that. It was set up more for cargo than being used as a taxi service. But the men made do. Mr. Sullivan drove the vehicle. Lawyer Brinkley sat beside him on a pillow placed on the transmission gear shift area. And next was the other truck driver, the 18-year-old young man, Wimmer. And beside him sat the sheriff next to the passenger door. Now at this point you might ask, now, hey, wait a minute, Scott. There were five men. You've only got four people sitting in the truck cab. Well, that that is true. You caught me on that. But if you grew up on a farm or in the country, you know there's always some way to accomplish what you set out or needed to have done. The district attorney actually rode on the running board of the truck outside the passenger window where the sheriff sat. Now, when you look at some of the media reports at the time in 1932, there are a few newspaper stories that reported that Mr. Wimmer, the 18-year-old gentleman, had also rode on the truck's running board on the driver's side of the truck. But I could not confirm that in the court records. Now, after arriving at the destination, the attorney, Mr. Brinkley, when he exited the truck, he ended up taking the pillow with him and went to the front door, followed by the district attorney. On a side note, the pillow was found later the next morning in the garage of the attorney, hidden. Quite a lot was made out of that in the press coverage. I'm not exactly sure why. Now sliding out of the truck himself, the sheriff got his coat caught in the door and asked to borrow a flashlight so that he could see to unfasten it. Now, Wimmer had seen the attorney exit the truck with the pillow and objected to it being taken. Mr. Sullivan, the truck driver and owner, told Wimmer just to shut up, that he might get into more trouble just to let it go. It's not a big deal. Now, we're talking about an 18-year-old young man. 
Weimer, as almost any 18-year-old, even today, was going to just let it go. He started arguing with the sheriff, still standing near the truck. And by this time, the attorney had reached his own porch, and the district attorney had been right behind him. Weimer exited the truck, possibly to retrieve the pillow. Sullivan, the driver, stated he heard the sheriff threatening to arrest Weimer for his smart mouth and lock him up in his jail. And, of course, Weimer continued arguing with the sheriff over the incident. Sullivan heard one shot and then saw his friend fall. After that, Sullivan said that he heard three more shots fired in quick succession. Court records show that Sullivan stated that he jumped off the truck without putting on the brakes or locking it in gear, ran across the attorney Brinkley's yard, and the truck ended up rolling back into a telephone pole. Seeing that his friend was shot, he ran back to the truck and drove off to find help. Sullivan, driving towards downtown Lexington, found two people. And again, this is after midnight. These individuals were later identified as a Mr. Quarles and a Mr. Elkins. Sullivan told the two that the sheriff had just shot his buddy and he needed to find the police. The two men got in their own car and followed the truck driver to the lawyer's home. In the process, they located a Lexington City police officer, picked him up, and took him also to the place of the shooting. Sullivan stated that when he returned, he found the sheriff down on all fours and his friend Weimer was lying on his back. An ambulance had been called for by the Lexington police officer. It soon arrived and took the sheriff and Weimer to the hospital. So we have the sheriff has been shot. He's in bad condition. We have another individual shot. Well, you know what this means. You better call your supervisor. Which the officer did. The chief of police for Lexington, North Carolina arrived. Came out, probably as well as a lot of other deputies and any other individuals that any other law enforcement that was working that night. The sheriff was dying when he arrived at the hospital and Weimer was in critical condition himself. He had a bullet that had penetrated his lower chest, passed under his heart and lodged in the opposite chest wall. One of the attorney's neighbors, a Mr. John B. Smith, lived across the street, later said that he was woken up by the firing of the shots. He got dressed, went across the street to investigate, and stated that he saw an unidentified man he did not know near the yard fence, then that person disappeared behind the house. By this point, the chief of police was on the scene. Mr. Smith provided that information to him. Now, using this information, they were able to locate the sheriff's pistol that had been buried in the backyard under two two to four inches of dirt and ash. And this is, of course, in the backyard behind the attorney's house. Now, lawyer Brinkley, as well as Mr. Yance later, denied any knowledge of how the gun got to where it was found. Both men also said that night there was no drinking in the group at all. The next day, an autopsy was performed. Coroner's jury had been convened. 
Initially, to be held after the autopsy, the coroner could not remove one of the bullets from the sheriff that they found, but they were able to take very detailed x-rays for evidential purposes. The Davidson County Coroner's jury met and declared that the death of the sheriff was a homicide. 18-year-old Weimer was charged with the murder of the sheriff, even though he insisted he didn't shoot anyone and was on the ground when he heard the other shots. Investigating officers found two 38 pistols in the commercial truck, but when they were sent off and analyzed and looked at, it was determined that neither of them had been fired. The coroner investigation and autopsy findings, though, just did not add up for the coroner based on the information that was brought out in the coroner's hearing. The clothing of both shot victims was analyzed. There was a lack of powder burns on the clothing of the 18-year-old, and the angle and the entrance wounds in it, to his injuries. The coroner determined that Weimer had been shot from a distance and, and shot from the front, facing his shooter. Examination of the sheriff's clothing told another story. Powder burns on the sheriff's clothing and the wound locations that were on the sheriff didn't make sense based on what had been brought up in the coroner's hearing. Now, when the coroner's jury was called, the attorney, Lawyer Brinkley's story, was presented to the coroner jury as this. We ate supper and then turned on the radio. Sheriff Leonard suggested that we motor over to Winston-Salem and see some friends. We readily agreed and went to see Mr. Snow over there. We started back between midnight and one o'clock, and a few miles from Lexington, we were passed by a truck which forced us off the road, and our car turned over against the embankment. Another truck stopped and the driver offered to take the three of us home. After arriving home, I got out of the truck and went up on the front porch. I hired three or four shots, then I went into the house and tried to call for help. Now at this hearing also, District Attorney Solicitor Yance denied that he had been drinking, denied that any of the men had been drinking. The DA stated that he had left the area and was not aware of any shooting incident. He stated, for the record, he was greatly shocked at the whole affair and wanted to help clear it up. Well, that was good of him saying, I know absolutely nothing about how the killing took place. I saw no guns. I was on the steps of Mr. Brinkley's house while Mr. Brinkley was trying to unlock his door when I heard the shots. I was bewildered. I began walking to my hotel. His statement about walking down the street was actually collaborated by the truck driver, Mr. Sullivan's testimony. Now, the chief of police for Lexington, R.B. Tolbert testified that when he arrived on the crime scene, he had tried several times to get into the Brinkley house and speak to somebody after the shooting had taken place and he, and he was unable to. He also said that he saw the light on in the kitchen but received no response to any of his knockings at any of the doors. A search of the fruit truck by the chief, he said, he did find two pistols, but neither of them had been fired. He testified about examining the sheriff's pistol after finding it in the backyard and finding the four empty cartridges in it. 
At the hospital, he interviewed the 18-year-old Weimer, who told him the sheriff had shot him, but that if he had shot the sheriff, he was really not conscious of it. Chief of Police was not getting a response at the house at the time of the shooting, went in search of the person who may have buried the gun in the backyard, who the neighbor had possibly seen near the fence. He did locate the district attorney about 2.30 in the morning, he said, in front of the hotel. When approached and asked if he knew that the sheriff had been killed, his response was, not that I know of. And this is the way that Chief Tolbert uh, quoted the solicitor as replying. He further went on to say, Mr. Yance was drunk and, in my opinion, pretty rattled. He said that he would talk to me in the morning and left it at that. Now, after hearing the testimony and reviewing the evidence, medical, scientific, and physical, the coroner had more questions than he had when he started the hearing. This ended up leading to a second hearing and a review by the coroner's jury the next day. Now, that day, before the hearing occurred, District Attorney Yant sent a telegraph to the governor of North Carolina advising the governor that he was resigning his position as solicitor for Davidson County, telling the coroner he wished to amend his testimony from the previous day. Lawyer Brinkley did so as well. Yance told the jury the following account that was in the court records. From the courtroom that day, I went to the hotel, washed and dressed up and then went back out the back door of the hotel, got into the sheriff's automobile, and we rode to Mr. Brinkley's home, where we were to have a steak dinner. We went there sometime between 6 and 7 o'clock. He was asked, what happened next after you arrived? Well, Mr. Brinkley was preparing supper. No one was there but us three. The examiner asking, was there any liquor there? Yes, there was liquor. Did you drink any? Came the next question. Uh, yes, we all three drank. We drank it out of a pint bottle, which was filled several times. It was poured into glasses. The examiner, did you drink before supper? Mr. Yance replies, we drank before and after supper. Well, what did you do then? Well, we sat and talked a while and listened to the radio for a while when the sheriff decided he wanted to go and see a friend of his in Winston-Salem. At 9.30, we went to a Mr. Ray Snow's home in Winston. I don't know how long we stayed, but for some time. We listened to Mrs. Snow play the piano. And his daughter, Miss Snow, was there too, I think. Examiner, did you drink any liquor there? Yance, not that I know of. Now, Yance described the accident and catching the ride in the fruit truck back to Lawyer Brinkley's home. The examiner asked, was there any argument between any members of the party on the way from the place you had your wreck in Lexington? Yance answered, well, the wind was striking me and I couldn't tell what was said. Well, there were two of them and three of us. I was on the right-hand running board. I think Brinkley sat in the middle and the sheriff sat next to me on the 
outside of the seat. I didn't hear any argument. Yance was asked if he had seen the sheriff shoot the 18-year-old boy. His reply was, I didn't observe the sheriff at all. We walked up the walk and Mr. Brinkley and I stopped inside of the screen door with me close behind. I had hold of the screen door when I heard a shot. I was just fixing to go inside. I rushed back out there. There was a boy lying on the ground and the sheriff standing there with a gun. I tried to take the pistol away from the sheriff and we struggled over it. There were two more shots and the sheriff fell, letting go of the pistol. Confused, I took the gun as a truck driver ran back and drove away in the truck. We took the gun and buried it in some ashes in the backyard. Attorney Brinkley at this point confirmed the statements that Yance made. Now this set of events and outcomes corresponded to the coroner's facts and the evidence that he had of what had occurred. Yance was arrested on a charge of murder. Attorney Brinkley was charged with aiding and helping to conceal the crime or incident. They were placed under a $10,000 secured bond. Now the charges were later changed to manslaughter. And on the day after April Fools, the evidence in the statements was sent to a jury in Davidson County. Now this is just two months after the incident occurred. Compare that to today's homicides, investigations, and finally the court. Deliberating close to four hours and asking for parts of the testimony to be reread to the jury by the court reporter, a verdict was eventually handed down. The verdict? Not guilty. The verdict provoked a great demonstration in the courtroom that was filled with a crowd of almost no sitting room anywhere. And apparently many were pleased with the verdict. There was much cheering and satisfaction among the crowd. But that's not the end of this somewhat strange story. Just before the judge dismissed the court, he ordered both Janssen Brinkley into custody by the bailiffs, arrested and placed under a $1,000 bond each on charges of perjury, which were preferred against them the week of the trial by the grand jury in an indictment for false testimony. The indictment bill was returned on the grounds that Yance and Brinkley, under oath, lied about the death of Sheriff Leonard at the first coroner's inquest and caused charges to be preferred against the 18-year-old Neil Weimer of Roanoke, Virginia. Now is the case closed? Not really. At a later trial on the false testimony charge, both men were found not guilty. Now how in the world could that happen, you might ask? Well, it was revealed that the defendants, when they made their testimony the first time to the coroner's jury, both men had been sworn before their testimony was given, but they weren't sworn on the Bible. There was no place your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. So, therefore, the testimony didn't count, apparently. There you have it.
Justice? Perhaps, but justice for who? You decide. But did we learn something? How about the fact that it's not a good idea to wrestle someone over a gun? Unless, of course, you're Chuck Norris. Well, that's our Shade of Blue story for today. Thank you for listening. And if you have thoughts or possible stories for future podcasts, drop me a line. Love to hear from more of y'all out there. Remember, in the coming weeks, stay safe and secure. If you have the opportunity, do something nice for somebody. It'll really make you feel good, too. Remember, wear the mask and keep your distance. And the life you save might be mine. I would really appreciate it. Victoria, you have the control again. Bye, y'all. You have been listening to The Felon File, hosted by Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast, or Scott's books and writings go to scottlunsfordauthor.com or felonfile.com. Scott can also be reached via these web pages. This is Victoria, your producer. I almost forgot. If you would like to support the Felon File podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com backslash felonfile. Here you can buy Scott a cup of coffee or help purchase some of the research material and expenses that it takes to do Felon File. That's buymeacoffee.com backslash felonfile. Once more thank you for listening.